I don't know if people know, but like the UPS trucks we get, they actually come with AC, and UPS pays the manufacturer to take the AC out. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On the Working People Podcast, that's a podcast by, for, and about the working class today, produced in partnership with In These Times magazine, three UPS drivers talk about 150-degree heat conditions and what their demands are. If you're a spirit worker or you're a JetBlue worker, for, for lack of better terms, I would liken it to taking the Yankees and the Mets and combining them and saying, now this is one baseball team. And, and those two teams have kind of been dynamically opposed for all these years. From the TWU Air Division podcast, that's updates and current news about what's happening in the Transport Workers Union Airline Division, Brian and Gary Peterson discuss the JetBlue Spirit acquisition. These are regular Americans who are trying to come together and fight for themselves, and they're being crushed by who? Billionaire CEOs. I mean, Howard Schultz. Nobody likes Howard Schultz. Nobody likes Jeff Bezos. Even Republicans hate Jeff Bezos, you know? On Empathy Media Lab's Labor Solidarity podcast, organizing the newsroom with labor journalist Hamilton Nolan. Empathy Media Labs is a publishing house, artist studio, event space focusing on labor, political economy, art, and culture. Out of all the contracts, I've been here for 20 years. This is one of the best contracts that I've seen in this company. And on the Solidarity Podcast, that's the official podcast of Teamsters Local 769 in Miami, Florida, Bez shares news about contract gratifications, a steward training seminar, a UPS Day of Action, and the Teamsters Local 769 Scholarship Fund. We were surrounded by teachers unions from all over the country, California, Michigan, New York, everywhere. So it was such a just awesome camaraderie to just be in that place to focus on issues that affect our students and our families as well as our members. On the CTU Speaks podcast from the Chicago Teachers Union, Andrea and Jim talked to two rank-and-filers, Lori Torres and Tammy Vinson, about the recent AFT National Convention. None of us had final draft on our computers, so I think I believe in giving people a chance, like you haven't done it before, and think that can be really great because you don't have the seasoned formulaic experience of a writer. And on 3rd and Fairfax, the podcast from the Writers Guild of America West, Amy Schumer discusses her writing process and how she got her new show, Life and Beth, on the air. Hey, a quick word before we get to the show. This is your network, and we're building it like a union organizing campaign. One show and one listener at a time. Help us build this sonic solidarity by sharing the show. Just click on the share button. Thanks very much. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Working People. As y'all heard, we've got a very special and, uh, frankly, quite urgent panel 
today, and I'm really honored to be joined by Steve, Gabriella, and Zach, three Teamsters who have worked for collectively many years in package delivery for UPS. There was just a new goddamn report saying that the sort of middle corridor, like most of the middle of the country, is going to be experiencing heat of 130 degrees in the next 25 years. And while that all sounds terrible, we have to remember that folks are still working through all of that. Package deliverers, like we said, are driving around in these metal hot boxes that reach temperatures of 150 degrees in there. And they're expected to work with no air conditioning. And so we wanted to convene this panel to talk about what workers are going through, what folks out there listening need to understand about the working conditions. I was wondering if we can go back around the table and just talk about what that looks that work looks like on a day-to-day basis working in the summer as a UPS driver what maybe folks on the customer side see or don't see that y'all are going through then the fact that we exert so much physical energy to move all of this stuff all of this medicine all of this food, all of this toilet paper, all of this stuff that our customers need, that metabolic heat combines with environmental heat, temperature, sunlight, humidity, and that stuff equals your core worker temperature. And when that temperature gets too high, it doesn't matter how much water you drink. That helps but it doesn't bring down that that internal temperature quick enough. And I learned that when my doctor told me that the symptoms I had last week were the symptoms of a heat stroke. That, that when I was cramping and my hands were unable to open, when I fell against the wall and I couldn't figure out how to get up off of it, she told me that's a heat stroke. What you have is your body is breaking down the proteins that you need to stay alive. So that's what was happening to me. And I didn't know it until after the fact. And there are a lot of people inside our building and inside our package cars. There are people in your neighborhood, in your community, right now, in package cars, out on the street, in front of your house. And they're having these problems. There are practical things that the company can do to invest in their workers, to invest in the infrastructure. They can put air conditioning in their buildings. They can put roof-mounted air conditioning or exhaust vents in the back of the package cars to draw that humid, hot air out. They're on RVs. Like, they exist. People have a need for this stuff already, and there are solutions for it already and the money is already there so do we invest in stock buybacks or do we invest in the core thing that makes our company profitable the company had this, has a decision to make carol tomy and the people who are on the board they have a decision to make and our customers when they have a choice of who is shipping their stuff They have a decision to make, too. So if you were getting packages that are too hot to touch, think about it. That has been in the back of a package car for maybe 10 hours. So have I. 
so is Steve, so is Gabriella. And there there are 330,000 Teamsters at UPS. We're sick of it. We're done with this stuff. It's not okay. We're over it. And so we're looking for victory in 2023. Our contract expires July 31st, 2023. And the Teamsters United slate that is now in leadership at the Teamsters Union, Sean O'Brien wants to take on UPS like never before. And we are putting all of our most important issues on the table. So in the next year, we're preparing to fight and to win, to win a great contract for our members. On July 20th, the Teamsters came out with a statement. Teamsters demand UPS protect drivers amid record heat. And they have a list of demands that UPS takes, like providing cool neck towels, PPE, installing a fan, ice machines, hiring more full-time drivers to relieve the amount of work we have. There's a lot of locals across the country who are partaking in a campaign called Safety Not Surveillance because UPS is installing cameras in every single package car so that they can watch us and surveil us even more on how stressful this job is. While I don't know if people know, but like the UPS trucks we get, they actually come with AC and UPS pays the car, like the manufacturer to take the AC out. So instead of keeping the AC in or spending money to install the AC, we're getting fans installed in our trucks. So there's a lot that we can do. The fight is mainly going to come down to UPS workers and to Teamsters because it's our contract and we can fight for a better contract. From the TWU Air Division offices in Collinville, Texas, it's the TWU Air Division podcast with local 513 Second Vice President Brian Parker. Join Brian as he discusses issues that affect the careers and lives of Air Division members. Take it away, Brian. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Transport Workers Union Air Division podcast. Joining me today is Air Division Director Gary Peterson. Hey, Brian. How are you today? I'm great. So I think it's a good time for us to talk about the JetBlue acquisition of Spirit Airlines. What's going on with that? Yeah, so obviously the last couple of months with JetBlue, Spirit, and Frontier has been kind of a complex conversation, but now the optics are starting to to get a little bit clearer, I guess would be the answer. There's no longer merger between Frontier and Spirit. It's an acquisition by JetBlue of Spirit Airlines. And I guess the major difference there is, you know, in an acquisition, JetBlue will acquire Spirit Airlines taking sole control of the aircraft employees, everything that's involved with that versus a merger where the two companies work together. JetBlue is definitively buying Spirit for a premium, paying a premium price for them. And that's a big difference, an acquisition and a merger. You want to expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, in a merger, the parties come together and they basically work through terms, conditions, things of that nature. Initially, this was a hostile takeover, right? That's, that's kind of how it was framed in the press. And then after the Frontier deal fell apart, for lack of better terms, which I believe they paid a penalty for to Spirit Airlines, now you have JetBlue, that is the sole entity that they've, I guess within you know a day or so, they've made an agreement to be acquired, not merged. So the JetBlue board of directors, so to speak, or whoever would run that end of the business has determined they're willing to pay a pretty significant premium to buy the shares and buy the company outright. You know, so the difference, I guess, big scheme of things is there's a lot of stuff that happens in the background, you know, from an acquisition versus a merger standpoint. You and I have been through 
several different variations of these things. But the biggest piece here is there is no merger, meaning Spirit Airlines comes in and, and they have a say in kind of how this goes. It will be, it will be driven by JetBlue. I know the TWU has been against the acquisition, and we represent members on both sides, you know, of each airline, the JetBlue IFCs and the Spirit Gate agents. Talk about why the TWU is against the acquisition. Yeah, there's a lot of pieces to this. We've been pretty vocal that the two carriers as standalone are better for everybody. And when you talk about that, I think it's hard when you work at a carrier. You wear your colors probably if you're a Spirit worker or you're a JetBlue worker. For, for lack of better terms, I would liken it to taking the Yankees and the Mets and combining them and saying, now this is one baseball team. And, and those two teams have kind of been dynamically opposed for all these years. We, the workers, get caught up in that. In the big scheme of things right now, what will happen is JetBlue management will dictate the terms and conditions that they integrate the carriers if and when it gets approved by the Department of Justice. You can look at this, and if you don't know much about it, you could say, wow, two smaller carriers are going to come together. There'll be a larger airline. They'll be able to compete and everything, and it all sounds great. But when you start digging into it, this is a very long and painful process, very painful, especially when it's an acquisition. The one carrier is going to be driving the boat. The other carrier employees are not going to like it very much. It's just not going to be a seamless process. No, and even though JetBlue in this particular case is, for lack of better terms, driving the boat, the JetBlue workforce that we represent is going to be impacted. We just don't know to what degree. So in a base where there's massive overlap between the two carriers, right, they're not going to keep everybody potentially in that base. I can't tell you what that looks like because they're not sharing that information with us. They're not putting those protections in place. You know, I said it earlier, you wear your colors proudly, right? Even though we have bad days and, and we say we hate the company, at the end of the day, we want to get passengers from point A to point B. We want to do our job to the best of our ability. And we do that. And every work group does that at every carrier. That's why I liken this to the Yankees and the Mets. I'll say this: you and I have been through multiple mergers and acquisitions along the way. And we were the dominant one at American all the way through to this last piece, right? And this is the first time we, meaning the American side of the house, we got to see what everybody else had seen for years. And that was American, even though they were larger, the way the company is now run is like Airways was run. And American people don't like that, meaning the American workforce. And we hear those complaints all the time. Well, they're doing this and they should be doing that. That happens, I think, we could say that about TWA. We could say it about Reno. We could say it about any of the, you know, the mergers and acquisitions we've been through. It just depends where you fall in. But the carrier is not the same. It's never the same after an acquisition or a merger. It's a different carrier. And so what you knew as legacy JetBlue, I would argue in this case, even if and when it does happen, it won't look like it does today. And people will be in different positions and management will shrink and they'll shrink walking out the door with millions of dollars in their pocket, leadership. And, and that's just the process that they have. We're, as I said, like a car wash. We just get spun in and get spun out of whatever the legalities of it are through federal law, Allegheny Mohawk and McCaskill Bond. And well, you mentioned something earlier. You and I both have been through a lot of this. The one thing I will say, I have all the confidence in the world, in the organization, uh, the leadership we have. So at the end of the day, the members are going to be represented to the utmost. So I appreciate that. And I thank you for joining me. And I thank everybody for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to the Labor Solidarity Podcast, which is an Empathy Media Lab production highlighting the work of organizers, labor journalists, and labor leaders. My name is Evan Papp. 
And I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, art and culture. And we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Hamilton Nolan, who is one of the most well-read labor journalists in the United States. So Hamilton, thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Ben. So what yeah, I've, I've heard you talk during uh, the weekly meeting for the Labor Radio Podcast Network when you came on as a guest and just talking about that the AFL-CIO, as ma many critiques, valid critiques that we make on this very large organization, having a the concept of an organizing uh, central uh, group is, is important because you're facing very organized capital, for instance. Could you talk a bit about what what that is and and like why it's important to, to have something like an AFL-CIO, even if it's uh, could be doing a lot better. Yeah, I mean, you know, you said it. I mean, the labor movement is the is the counterbalance to the power of capital in society. That's what it is. And when you think of what we're up against, when you think of a company like Amazon, you know, these are trillion dollar companies. I mean, they're extremely organized. They do not lack for organization. You know, they do not lack for manpower. They do not lack for resources. Um, they don't lack for lobbyists. They don't lack for staff. I mean, they have all these things. These are the things that we are supposed to be strong enough to balance out. And, uh, you know, a problem with the labor movement in America is that there's really no there's no there there. There is no center of the labor movement, if we're if we're being honest, you know, and that's something that I had to sort of it was it was a harsh thing for me to find out as a as a person who was invested in the labor movement, you know, as I got deeper into it to really find out that the closest thing we have to a central body in the labor movement is the AFL-CIO, which is a coalition of 55 unions that doesn't have any power to make those unions do anything. And so what we really have is just a bunch of different unions doing their own thing. And we don't have a central focus and coordination and drive in the labor movement. And it hurts us. And, um, you know, I, I am not under the illusion that it's easy to unify um, all those unions. But at the same time, we know that it's necessary. We know that we have to be able to move in a unified direction, if we want to have any hope of, of turning this thing around. And so, you know, you have to have that vision at the AFL-CIO and at the top of the labor movement. I mean, if nobody else believes it, they have to believe it. So if they don't believe it, it's, it's very disappointing. So uh, another article you've written recently uh, for The Guardian, it's uh, titled, If Democrats Want Votes, They Should Rain Fury on Union-Busting Corporations. What what uh, got you to write this article? I mean, what I was thinking about when I wrote it was um, Chipotle recently, there was the first organized Chipotle at a store in Maine. The workers, you know, came together and were about to vote to certify their union and Chipotle shut the store. And Starbucks, which has obviously been unionizing across the country, is closing stores left and right, has closed a number of stores that either recently unionized or were in the process of organizing and it's firing worker organizers left and right. Um, and Amy's Kitchen organized and just shut an entire factory. I mean, and these are very bold things for companies to do. I mean, companies do this because they assume that they can get away with that. They would not do something so bold if they thought that there were gonna actually be penalties. And so, to the extent that 
uh, American labor law is weak and American labor law is, is, is kind of an insufficient tool to punish these companies with in a lot of cases, even though what they're doing is illegal. And if it goes through the process, presumably they will lose an honest, you know, an honest judgment. But um, in the meantime, I, I think about what we have is a Democratic Party that ever since Donald Trump was elected has been kind of fretting about, oh, my gosh, we're losing the working class. The working class is going to this right wing populism vision. And what are we going to do? And how do we, you know, that whole strain um, of thought among like the con consultant class and Democratic Party. And you think about the opportunity that the labor movement has um, for the Democrats, I mean, even even on a political level, like, look, these are working people. These are regular Americans who are trying to come together and fight for themselves. And they're being crushed by who? Billionaire CEOs. I mean, Howard Schultz. Nobody likes Howard Schultz. Nobody likes Jeff Bezos. Even Republicans hate Jeff Bezos, you know? So, like, what better opportunity for Democrats to come out and stand up and be loud and pound the table and say, look, we're not going to stand for this. You know, we are going to use every tool of the U.S. government to come after you for this illegal and blatant um, and unjustified union busting that you're doing. I mean, it's very out and open what is happening. And when you look around the landscape of national national politics, obviously you don't see Republicans say anything. Well, you don't really see any national Democrats saying anything with the exception of Bernie Sanders, you know, and maybe a couple of other people. Um, you don't see the Democratic Party unifying around this. And it's 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 really a symbol to me of the failure um, of the Democrats to even be able to pretend that they care about actual working class issues, because what could crystallize it for voters more than regular working people trying to better themselves and being stepped on? by evil billionaires, you know? Yeah, it doesn't help when you have Howard Schultz, you know, looking, testing the waters on a presidential run in the Democratic Party, and you have Bloomberg, a Republican, moving over and becoming a Democrat, and you have all the Democrats swooning over Liz Cheney right now because of uh, what she's doing at the January 6th hearings. Hamilton Nolan, thank you so much for your time. Awesome, thank you for having me, appreciate it. brothers and sisters. This is the Solidarity Podcast from Teamsters Local 769. I'm Brian Besbiati, but everybody calls me Bez. We have a jam-packed show for you this episode as we update you on all of the goings-on over the summer and a look ahead to 2023. Let's begin with the news.
We have had a number of contract ratifications since our last episode. Here are some of the highlights. On Tuesday, April 12, 2022, Avis service agents and courtesy bus drivers ratified a new five-year agreement that increases their wages to levels they have never seen. Yvette Dawson, who represents these workers at the Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and West Palm Beach Airport locations, has this to say. I would like to thank the negotiating committee, Ivan Rodriguez, Jeffrey Davis, Joseph Smith, Melvin Alexander, and special thank you to business agent Chuck Tomei for all his hard work. Thank you. On May 18, 2022, Teamster mechanics and utility workers at Avis Budget in the Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and West Palm Beach locations voted to ratify a new five-year contract, which was significantly improved over the offer they previously rejected. Here's Yvette Dawson. Our members were not happy with the first offer from the company, so we were able to go back to the table and get them significant benefits from what they were looking for. A special thank you to the committee of Frank Wayne Hatmaker and Earl Anderson. The members were extremely ecstatic with the new offer, and they look forward to continue working under a strong union contract. Nice job. The new agreement offers big improvements over its predecessor, and demonstrates what can be accomplished collectively. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what some of the members had to say, like Lewis Cruz. To me, the contract was, to me, was a perfect contract this year. Out of all the contracts, I've been here for 20 years. This is one of the best contracts that I've seen in this company. First and foremost was the raise, you know, as a senior driver here, uh, the last couple of contracts, we have given up a little bit more to the junior guys to help them out. And uh, just the little things that you got, guys added the uh, extra medical days and, you know, and uh, just, but that to me personally was the race. Thanks this month go to all of the members and agents who helped with the news segments. Bye, folks. Welcome to this episode of CTU Speaks, CTU at AFT. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers. I'm your co-host, Jim Staros, and I'm joined with... His better half, Andrea Parker. You know, you keep saying you're the better half, and I'm, I'm finding that to be unlikely. Why? I don't know. Why can't we just be equals? I thought that's what it was all about, Ms. Parker. Equality. It's really about equity. And there's a difference. Nice. <laughs> so what are we talking about this, uh, this episode? This episode is about CTU being sent out on a delegation to the AFT convention. And for those who are out there that do not know what the AFT convention or the AFT stands for, it is the CTU's mother Union, the American Federation of Teachers, and they had their biannual convention on last month in July. And about 80 of us CTU strong members yeah. went to represent CTU and represent our teachers and our families and our students on issues that impact us and to make them national resolutions. So we had a great time, and there's a lot of things we definitely want to share with you about that convention, which was Jim and I's first in-person convention. So we're here with Tammy Vincent, who is a special education teacher, and with Lori Torres, who is our Spanish teacher, as they are going to discuss in depth the AFT or the American Federation of Teachers convention that we just recently had 
in Boston last month. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Lori, what kind of issues did they discuss there? What kind of issues did they bring up? I think one of the um, important takeaways I got from it was we're hearing issues that in our 2019 bargaining were part of the issues we brought up. Um, our houseless students, the importance of fully staffed schools, um, community schools, all of those things were part of the discussions we were having with um, members from across the country, which was kind of nice to hear, actually. That's true, because we were like about 80 deep. We were surrounded by teachers unions from all over the country, California, Michigan, New York, everywhere. So it was such a just awesome camaraderie to just be in that place to focus on issues that affect our students and our families, as well as our members. Um, so if many of you all do not know what the Chicago Teachers Union have is we have a monthly delegate meeting called the House of Delegates. And in the House of Delegate meeting, we discuss like resolutions that we are going to support. And so the AFT is kind of like that, where it's like a big House of Delegates meeting where you have delegates from all over the country that come teachers from all over the country, teachers, PSRPs, nurses, and other um, clinical um, health profession professionals that come together and we um, talk about resolutions that we feel need to be put on the forefront and that our government officials need to be aware of. So with that being said, Tammy and Lori, what were some of the most important resolutions that were discussed or passed at the AFT convention? We discussed so many because, uh, as you know, the AFT has committees similar to the committees that we have within the Chicago Teachers Union. So each of those committees met and prioritized at least three resolutions that were submitted again nationally. I was in the uh, Human Rights Committee and the uh, one resolution that, uh, that was promoted as being really important to the conversation was one on Asian American uh, Pacific Islanders uh, rights and, and uh, making sure that the national union spoke out against the mistreatment of folks within that demographic. And also uh, there were some conversations about one that we had reported from CTU that did not actually make it because there was a, a single line in the resolution that alluded to defunding the police. So again, there has to be a political will within these committees to promote things. And that one was decided outside, I guess, of our function that the funding of the police was not something that they wanted us to support nationally. So again, each committee had those discussions and that was just the one that I was on. But there were, um, we spent two days discussing resolutions and voting them up or down. And our goal now is to see how they're implemented on a national scale. Right, well, th thank you guys so much about coming on the show and explaining you know, what's going on at the AFT convention and how we can get involved and about the, the difference CTU has been making nationally and the, uh, the voice we've got around the country and around the world. Thank you guys very much. And hopefully you all come back soon. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Again, 312-467-8888.
Jim, are there any other ways for our listeners to get in contact with us? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's hella ways you can get in contact with us. Besides calling us at that phone number that Ms. Parker just shared with us, you could also email us at ctuspeaks at ctulocal1.org. You can also probably find us on all these different podcasting platforms. Click subscribe, whatever else you have to do. There's like a little bell on some of them, I think, that lets you know when there's a new episode coming out. I don't know if that's true for all of them, but I think it is. Instagram. I don't know. Maybe we're on there. Probably. Maybe. I don't know. Is that a thing? I don't even know. I don't know. I think Jim just wants to hear the sound of his voice. But I do want to just say the school year is upon us as you all hear this podcast. So we just hoping for a great 2022-2023 school year. I know that we started back earlier than normal, but let's just hope for the best. We're going to have a great year. And also, please um, visit our CTU page and see what committees you would like to join. We will definitely want more educators involved. There are many committees that you can be a part of. There is definitely a committee for you. We have a special education committee. We have a social committee. We have a legislative committee. And I don't want to take too many others because I don't want to leave any more out. But we have so many committees. Again, we are a social justice union. And everybody in, nobody out. All right? So with that being said, we are CTU Speaks, where we only speak what matters. And we will see you next time. Yes, we will. Bye. This is Josephine Green-Jong with Third and Fairfax Podcast. Today, I have with us Amy Schumer, the stand-up comedian we all know, but also the creator and writer and also director of many of the episodes of Life and Beth. Amy, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much. (laughs) What inspired you to write Life and Beth now? I was pregnant and up at this old farmhouse that was my parents before we went bankrupt that I had bought back when I made money and my husband and I were up there like hanging out and restoring it and just being in an environment where you were as a kid that you haven't been back to at all is like really intense and so everything just came flooding back to me and I wanted to yeah I wanted to tell my story of my teenage years. How did you revisit and get so specific in, in, in detailing, like how vivid the show got into your specific feelings? Like how, how were you able to recapture it? I kept really detailed journals. I kept an almost daily diary of my life from age around like 12 to 21. And so that's why these memories and some of them did escape me and then I would read them and remember. So yeah, Mm -hmm. anybody who's thinking about maybe being a creator, just write everything. And a lot of the memories in it, because you know, a lot of it is biographical are from are like the most traumatic, which I think tend to be the most vivid in. So in developing the project, what was, was the beginning stages like what was like the first formation did you have a pitch at first or did you have an episode already written or did you first write the first 10 episodes what was your process like in in uh, making life in bed I wrote the pilot episode like probably 
like almost 20 times before I went out to pitch. And I was like really pregnant and sick. I was like approaching nine months. So I came out to LA because I live in New York and to pitch it. And everybody would just, all the executives were coming in and out of the room while I, because I was too sick to travel. And then Hulu picked it up. What was the experience like directing for you and in something that you're also starring in and writing? And then also like for the other writers, I saw that Colleen McGinnis is one of the writers and <laughs> how you found writers in your room. And I mentioned her because I actually saw her at a, a panel years ago, back in pre-pandemic when at Asian American Writers and Comedy. And she just, I had a chance to talk with her and she's just great. So was, she's was, amazing. Isn't she? Yeah. So my agent, I think it's her agent and they were really good friends and just, I, we met and just connected and I was like, I really want to create the show. And she was integral in, in creating it. And, and so the writers, like, we really just wanted to find people who, because for my sketch show, it's like, I had no sketch background. And, and I think that can be helpful and hurt. None of us had final draft on our computers. It was like, so I think I believe in giving people a chance, like who haven't done it before and think that can be really great because you don't have the seasoned formulaic experience of a writer that you may, if they were like trodden as writers, just trying to mix it up with people who had narrative experience and just people who I think are really funny and make me feel good. Amy, this has been such a fun conversation. I had such a nice time talking to you. Thank you so much for this. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad to hear you're better. And (laughs) like, I sound so bad. It sounds like someone's holding my nose, but yeah, sorry to the listeners about my voice. It's the best we've got. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 Labor Radio shows and podcasts to make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links, lots of links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them. Use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Mel Smith and Patrick Dixon. They did all the heavy lifting. I produced the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us, hope you do, on Twitter and Instagram, Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. And before we go, please take just a second, help us build that sonic solidarity, share the show, click on the share button. Thanks very much. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. See you next week.